the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, Tonight, we're going to spend the next two segments talking about the coronavirus. I'm sure by now we've all heard about it. And uh, we've heard about this being the flu season. We've heard about where the coronavirus came from, where it is now, and uh, some of the facts and details about it we're going to explore tonight with the uh, health commissioner from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, Mr. Terry Allen. Uh, Terry, thank you for joining us tonight. Glad to be here, Nick. Thanks for the invitation. Well, well my pleasure. This is uh, such an important thing. And uh, I know you and I have known each other for many years. Uh, uh, just going back, we were talking earlier about the uh, H1N1 virus and how these years go by. How long ago was the H1N1 situation? Yeah, that's, we're now 10 years in. That, that was the uh, during the 2009-2010 um, uh, flu season where that uh, coincided. So, yes, time does go by quick, doesn't it? Well, well, it does. I'm wondering, the older I get, the more vivid I can recall that. It, I can remember the uh, inoculation centers and uh, the CERT right. teams working. And it, I can visualize this as if it happened only two years ago, but 10 years have gone by. And, uh, well, congratulations uh, to you because as Commissioner of Health, or the Health Commissioner, something like this brings you out onto the, uh, the center stage. Uh, you know, this is it. You're the guy who we're going to be looking to here in Cuyahoga County as far as how are we going to respond, how's the government going to respond to protect our, well, we have about 1.3 million people in Cuyahoga County. Uh, so, one of the things I wanted to talk about first was the County Board of Health, and you being the health commissioner, if you could share with us, for our listeners, what are some of the authorities that you have that, um, depending on how this goes, you may or may not have to use? And, and I think there's a lot more authority there than we ordinarily think. All right, well, thanks, Nick, for the, uh, for the uh, appreciation for the role and the work. I, I mean, I think... Uh, to start off, as we think about this, I will just tell people as we have this conversation that there are parallels from the H1N1 uh, response that may very well be uh, service, may very well service um, uh, as we think through the, this evolving context around coronavirus. But uh, there are a number of those powers actually that we uh, used at the time in, in uh, addressing H1N1. And many of them are there and, and often don't need to be used and shouldn't be used in, in, until certainly necessary. So we certainly have the power to uh, quarantine folks uh, if need be to prevent uh, a spread of uh, an illness. Uh, certainly some of that is done with tuberculosis uh, in the community, but it can also be done in other circumstances uh, to protect the health and safety of the community. Uh, there also are some powers around uh, um, in extreme situations. Uh, health departments we have the authority to commandeer a hotel to use to house uh, patients should hospitals uh, reach their limits again that's not something you'd expect to ever happen as far as i've known has not happened i imagine back in 1918 during the spanish flu pandemic they would have 
pulled on out of stops given the scope and magnitude of that uh, flu uh, pandemic. But uh, among those authorities also uh, work that we do around uh, facility closures and and uh, any number of uh, messaging around uh, limiting public movement and, and large gatherings. These are, of course, again, uh, uh, powers that exist uh, in public health that are used rarely, if at all, and very, um, very uh, um, carefully and certainly um, thoughtfully because uh, they're disruptive and, and uh, need to be weighed against the net effect of the disruption versus the net protection they may provide. So these are the types of things that are out there but uh, are not often utilized uh, unless necessary. Uh, with regard to public events, can you cancel public events? Well, certainly what we would do in most cases is uh, we would, if there would need be uh, a situation where we had an escalated um, uh, situation like uh, uh, coronavirus, if, if things uh, really uh, became very severe, which, of course, at this point, it's, we really don't know what to expect. We have no cases here, but looking into the future, if we did, uh, we would be in consultation with the individuals involved in those events and make decisions about the prudence of of canceling them. And our, our, our full anticipation is that these organizers would see the merits in what we're proposing, given the context of the situation. And usually those things are done hand in hand. And I think that's uh, the best way to, 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 uh, to proceed when you're considering closing mass gatherings. They're very disruptive to do that, but we've already seen in certain circumstances there have been decisions made uh, in other places around the world to to limit mass gathering as a way to try to break the uh, chain of transmission. So it can be a useful tool, but I think it would only be dictated by the circumstances of uh, perhaps a protracted and more severe uh, flu outbreak or coronavirus outbreak. Well, sure, I, I would think uh, as necessary. But if it were necessary, uh, that, that power would be there. And what, what brings it to my attention is over the weekend I saw that, I think it was in Italy, a soccer game played. Uh, yeah. The teams came and played to an empty stadium uh, because yeah, of the health concerns. Yeah. Very, very, very strange. Um, but uh, I know going back with the uh, H1N1, uh, I know working with you at that time, uh, and the inoculations, there, there are certain fundamental public health issues that... Uh, or, or formulas, I suppose, more is that you take the attitude of protecting the herd uh, in the sense that if so many people got inoculated, you'd stop the spread of something. Right. Uh, we, without the virus, is there any chance that we, uh, using the same uh, algorithms, might uh, slow down the spread of the coronavirus? Well, certainly I should first say, Nick, in, in, in way back when, uh, in 2009-10, in response to H1N1 and the you and many CERT team members uh, across the uh, greater Cleveland community were invaluable. Uh, their their uh, civic engagement, uh, support for the community was uh, exemplary, helping to organize the uh, mass vaccination uh, centers that were in multiple places around the uh, county worked incredibly well and helped to move people through it at very fast throughputs. I think it was impressive and shows that uh, that working together works and, and uh, people, when needed, are willing to uh, help their communities, and I thought that was very gratifying. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so certainly heard the idea of herd immunity, the idea that uh, you can create a level of protection if you can get a, a significant percentage of the population protected makes sense. And, of course, that speaks to the presence of a vaccine. 
uh, during H1N1, it was about eight months uh, between when uh, we first started seeing uh, cases and the United States made a declaration of an emergency uh, to when we had a vaccine, which then was ready to deploy. We certainly had to initially ration it to uh, focus on high-risk populations like uh, seniors and people with chronic illnesses, safety forces, pregnant women. And so this initial rationing meant that uh, we took care of those uh, that we thought needed it the most first. And that was based on some work that CDC did. They actually convened um, the public into work groups and asked them, would they be willing to uh, ration vaccine if it was limited and, uh, and based on making decisions about who needed it most? And the public was very supportive of that as long as there was clear communication on the reasons they saw the value of critical uh, staff and, and response staff uh, being vaccinated first and then certainly vulnerable populations. So the public, uh, I think, understands uh, when a process is rapidly evolving that uh, we've got to make some sacrifices and think of what the greater good is. In the case of coronavirus, we know that it will be anywhere from 12 to 16 months before we'll actually have a vaccine. Somewhere in the next six weeks, we're told, human trials will begin. Uh, and through that process, uh, they'll eventually work to validate the efficacy of the vaccine and, and do that with larger and larger groups of people. And so uh, a bit of a longer road here, so we're going to need to rely on non-pharmaceutical interventions to help to curtail uh, coronavirus if it begins to spread here, and CDC provides some great guidance for that. Well, what are some of the, you know, we'll sort of jump to this now, what are some of the non-pharmaceutical solutions or, or theories, treatments, programs? Right, so we learned a lot from H1N1, which was, I think, very helpful. And a number of these non-pharmaceutical interventions actually are quite effective for the flu, preventing the flu. And so uh, things uh, starting at a very basic level, uh, these are things that our grandmothers told us and our moms told us. Is, you know, you need to wash your hands and do that thoroughly. And, uh, washing your hands thoroughly with soap and water um, for 20 seconds and singing either that or singing happy birthday twice is a good way to assure that you thoroughly clean your hands and uh, uh, dry them. We know that uh, that uh, that works. It helps to reduce risk of uh, transmission and spread. And we also know that uh, frequent surface cleaning of, uh, you know, for instance, tables, uh, desks, uh, door handles, doorknobs, uh, shared computer terminals and work environments, uh, thinking about these things that people touch often. If they're frequently clean, you can reduce viral load uh, in uh, those environments, and we know that that works as well, too. Moving up, uh, tearing up based on the level of need, uh, there also can be uh, instances of social distancing, where you may decide to make decisions if uh, if the uh, severity of a of an outbreak uh, begins to deepen, where you can look at creating distance between people and work environments. Well, let, let's let's talk about yeah. social distancing sure. after our break. We're yeah. talking to uh, the Cuyahoga County Health Commissioner, Mr. Terry Allen. By the way, Terry's been uh, with the Board of Health for 30 years, and he's been the commissioner. For 17. So, Terry, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Mr. Terry Allen after these words. Listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, don't go away. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Tonight we're talking 
about the coronavirus and uh, you know where it is and, and what it's all about. And to help us talk about this tonight, we have uh, our own chief person in charge of the health of all of us here in Cuyahoga County is uh, the Cuyahoga County Health Commissioner, Terry Allen. Uh, Terry, thank you again for joining us tonight. Glad to be here, Nick. Uh, we're talking about the coronavirus, uh, and uh, with regard to the virus itself, uh, is there? Because I, I know in your role, you're probably in regular contact with the CDC, the NIH, and whatever other agency has a up-to-the-minute medically competent uh, opinion about what's going on. And uh, with that, uh, do you have a feel for how dangerous the coronavirus is? For example, if someone becomes infected, and let's say they're not very old and they're not very young, but let's just say a person of average health, and they haven't had the flu yet this year, but they do get the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, on the scale of like 1 to 10, how dangerous is having and living through the coronavirus? Well, I'll, I'll uh, approach the question a different way if I can. So mm -hmm. the first is that uh, it's important to note that this uh, virus originally was a uh, host is, uh, um, animals, and, and as you probably heard from the news in bats, and at some point uh, now humans have contracted the virus. And so what we know is that we, we've been watching this process evolve because now the virus has never been in a human host and it may not behave the same as it may affect a bat. And so what we're learning is uh, several things over the last um, eight, I'd say oh, six to eight weeks as this process has evolved, certainly with China doing a lot of publishing uh, among their scientists so that they can help the world understand. So the first is that about 80% of the cases are fairly mild. And we know that uh, we're not seeing a lot of kids uh, that are affected, which is the same for SARS, which is also a coronavirus. And so that's uh, that's also, we're very glad to hear that. We also know that um, seniors or older folks that have chronic illnesses or limited uh, lung function or maybe immune suppression, uh, all those uh, risk factors, uh, chronic diseases like uh, heart disease or diabetes, those, uh, those can put you more at risk for a more severe illness. And so we've also learned that, you know, the fatality rate for flu, and by the way, in the United States, there's already over 29 million cases of flu and we're approaching uh, 20,000 uh, fatalities and in any given year up to 50,000 people can die from the flu so keep that in mind as we talk about coronavirus um, of course so, yeah. so we know that about 0.01% of, of people that contract flu die and those are usually the most uh, high risk folks, the most vulnerable folks when we're talking about coronavirus the data from China outside of Wuhan Within Wuhan, we've heard, uh, which is, of course, the epicenter of activity in, in China, we've heard anywhere from a 2 to 4% fatality rate outside of Wuhan. The fatality rate is somewhere in the range of 04 to 0.7%, so a bit higher than the flu, and so we need to keep that in mind, but not, uh, not near... Uh, the fatality rate that we're seeing at the epicenter of Wuhan, which is which is positive. Why, so we, real quick, why, why would why would that be a higher uh, percentage of uh, fatalities in Wuhan? Is it a stronger uh, strain of the virus, or people are in not as strong health, or too many old people, or what? What's that about? 
Well, I think because it was spreading, uh, and it wouldn't be a stronger strain, it's the same strain as, as, as we currently understand it, uh, it would be that there was so much transmission happening, certainly before they recognized it, because it was a novel virus that was not recognized as something different than the flu at the time. And when it became recognized, it already had a strong foothold of, of uh, exposure in the community, and we saw a lot of uh, community transmission. And so, it, you know, basically the brush fire had been started, and they really had a hard time getting hold of it, and many people were being exposed in lots of different settings before uh, they began to understand the scope of it. And, of course, you know, the uh, Chinese government basically locked down Wuhan, which, by the way, is a city of... Uh, over 13 million people to give you a sense of of the magnitude of it and so there was a lot of people in close close proximity and a lot of risk and and they sort of uh, late uh, start to respond because it was such a novel virus that people didn't know uh, what was really occurring uh, in, in you know early on in the in the process so what we had is this fulmination that created higher risk within that epicenter so outside of Wuhan once uh, they had a better understanding of what was happening. They were able to begin to implement mitigation strategies uh, that helped to reduce risk for uh, you know other parts of the country and certainly for the rest of the world in, in terms of understanding how this virus works. Um, a couple of real quick questions. Uh, I'll ask them so because we we can talk to you for hours <laughs> and we don't have that much time. <laughs> But real quick, uh, yes or no on this, uh, do we know whether or not the virus is being carried and spread by animals such as dogs? Uh, we have no evidence of that at this time. Uh, we believe uh, right now it's, it's people, and that's what we're for, certainly focused on. Okay, next question, yes or no. Is, do you think this is going to be a seasonal thing that when spring rolls around in about four weeks, will this start dissipating on its own? Well, that's really uh, too hard to tell. Uh, some people have uh, suggested that. I wouldn't say yes or no because we have to wait and see. It's a brand new virus. We've never seen it live through a season, so we're not quite sure yet how it will behave, but I think time will tell. Then the next follow-up question to that, uh, current trends, are, this has been around now for several weeks as we've been watching it, and with the current trends, do we see a leveling off or a tapering off or any effects of the quarantine efforts we've been making, or we, the human race has been making? Uh, you're talking in terms of the work we've been doing around um, around uh, coronavirus specifically, is that what you mean? Well, yeah, I'm thinking, I, you know, because the coronavirus is uh, specifically identifiable, and they're tracking it in each country, and they're announcing this every yeah. day where it's going, and uh, extraordinary efforts are being made to identify and quarantine people. Is this having right. an effect, and are they having any measurable statistics showing that this is somewhat slowing down the spread from what it would be if it were totally uncontrolled? Right. Well, I would say that, you know, the travel restrictions that were imposed in the United States actually did help to buy us some time. And, you know, as we sit today, our case counts are still very low compared to uh, many countries. We know what the uh, what the index cases, the source cases are of the exposures, and therefore we can track community contacts and contact trace and, and, and try to control the spread. So I think we're in a better place because of those controls. And also, you know, lots of people are returning it from... Uh, traveling from areas of risk and we were monitoring them and they're staying home and preventing those interactions in society. I think it's helped immensely going forward as now we have uh, what six continents now that have evidence of, uh, of coronavirus uh, and you know the, the uh, 
the concern and the ability to, to keep those cases well, that, uh, under wraps is, is an open question. It, it is. Well, uh, turning, turning now in the last couple of minutes yeah. we have, uh, personal sure. protection here, we, you know, what can we do? None of us here are able to come up with a vaccine. None of us are able to do yeah. much about this other than still live. Uh, so uh, yes or no questions uh, for the most part. Uh, wash our hands yeah. a lot. Yes, yes, yes. Don't touch our face. As much as you can avoid it, yes. Don't touch your face. Children, colds, even adults, don't pick your nose if your hand's dirty. <laughs> Keep your hands away from your face. I was going to say, so, someone said the uh, the face masks that you can buy, the paper ones in the uh, drugstores, um, are probably not going to stop the virus, but might help uh, stop you from putting your fingers around your face. <laughs> <laughs> Is that that accurate, maybe? Well, we don't think uh, the, the, the current wisdom is uh, healthy people don't need masks. Masks are for sick people. Other, other, other things, uh, for example, going to the grocery store and using the, the wipes to uh, wipe the handles on the push carts and the baskets. Take advantage That's of that. Uh, also, you know, here in Cuyahoga County, a lot of stores are not using and issuing paper bags anymore. So if you have your own bag you're bringing in, use that to shop with and put your food in that and stay away from the push carts. Is that a good idea? That's, it's a great thing. It's a great sustainability model as well. Uh, the idea of going on an airplane, bring some uh, type of bleach or Clorox type uh, wipes to wipe down that tray table and the armrest, maybe. As well as the uh, as well as the uh, um, the seat, the belt that you put on when you have to you have to buckle up on the plane, wipe that down too. And also, if you're going to be touching the magazines and that uh, that uh, sort of net net rack in front of you, I'd wipe that down as well. Very good. So we do all of this. And uh, then we say, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Well, very uh, good. Prevention. Prevention. Well, Mr. Terry Allen, thank you so very much for, uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, it, it's an informational uh, topic that is going to be with us for some time. R- real quick, uh, sort of a yes or no, will we have a, a clear moment when you can say all clear? Uh, I hope so. All right, that's the best we can hope for. Well, we'll stay in touch with you to let us know if and when that's going to be possible. So, Mr. Terry Allen, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. The Advocate will be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the uh, next two segments, we're going to be talking about Medicare and try to unscramble and demystify some of the things that people who are just getting into Medicare are are probably facing and what the options are and and why do we even have options. Well, to talk to us about that tonight is an expert on Medicare, and she's going to flinch when I say that, an expert on everything in Medicare. Uh, Christine Groh, and she's calling from Washington, D.C. tonight. Christine, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, did I oversell you on being an expert on everything Medicare, or I don't know? <laughs> I will do my very best. And Medicare can be complicated, so I, but I, you know, in helping people at least understand where to start, I think, uh, I think I could be helpful. Well, I, I think so. Uh, as my father was growing older, he lived till uh, he was 96. And it seemed the more medical treatment he needed, the more Medicare forms were coming out. And he was less and less able to handle the forms. 
uh, luckily had children, uh, one of them, like me, being able to help him out. But um, with Medicare, you're with the uh, Coalition for Medicare Choices, right? That's right. Tell us what that is. You're anticipating my question, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. The Coalition for Medicare Choices is an organization that represents about 2 million seniors uh, nationwide. And what they are uh, advocating for is for a strong Medicare Advantage program. When people age into Medicare or otherwise become eligible for Medicare, they have a choice of the kinds of plans that they can uh, purchase or get for themselves. They can get traditional Medicare, uh, which is Part A and B, with Part A covering some hospitalization costs and Part B covering things like doctor visits. Medicare Advantage is what's known as Part C. And Medicare Advantage looks and feels and operates a lot more like uh, the plan that you might get through your job or through your employer. A lot of Medicare Advantage plans also include prescription drug coverage. So uh, seniors are very uh, appreciative and really like their Medicare Advantage plans. And those who are part of the Coalition for uh, Medicare Choices really want to uh, protect Medicare Advantage and ensure that it remains a stable program that can continue to innovate and offer them more benefits at a lower cost. The alphabet soup, uh, Medicare Part A, Medicare Part B, Medicare Part C and D, um, just briefly, what, just for those of us who aren't uh, all that versed in Medicare, what is Medicare Part A? Medicare Part A is the part of Medicare that covers uh, a lot of the hospitalization. And so when someone just has been participating in Social Security, has been contributing to Medicare, and they turn 65, uh, are they automatically enrolled in Medicare uh, at all? Or do they have to they, Yes, they need to enroll in Medicare when they turn of age. So when you when you are eligible or turn of age, and, and I make the distinction of becoming eligible for Medicare because there are certain health conditions that can uh, make you eligible for being on a Medicare plan. Uh, for example, one of the things that, that comes up most frequently is kidney failure and end-stage renal uh, disease. So those people who have been diagnosed with that condition may also be eligible for Medicare. If you become eligible for Medicare, you will be sent notifications by the government that encourage you to enroll for a plan, and that's when you start making decisions about do you want uh, just the hospitalization part, which is Part A? Do you want to combine Medicare Part A and Part B um, with uh, hospital visits um, and other medically necessary services? Or do you want a Part C plan that provides more comprehensive coverage plus some additional benefits? You also mentioned Part D, and Part D is prescription drug coverage, so you can buy a a Part D plan separate from Medicare Advantage. But a lot of Medicare Advantage plans include prescription drug coverage bundled in with them. So there are a lot of different choices, uh, a lot of different ways that you can shop for a plan. Uh, you can go to a health insurance provider and talk with them about what plans they may offer in your geography, or you can go to Medicare.gov, and there are a lot of resources available from the federal government that will ask you questions and help you to make a buying decision that's right for you. Now, going back to the uh, the numbers or the letters, uh, Medicare A is hospitalization. Part B covers what, doctor's visits? That's right. 
and uh, then we said Medicare Part C. Where does we hear, hear the term Medicare supplement? Where, where does that come in? Those are all the other ele- uh, letters of the alphabet that follow Part D. And so what these are, they're, they're referred to Medicare supplements. Some people may know them as Medigap plans. But they are supplemental kinds of coverage that are designed to fill in what Part A and Part B may not cover. So they are also another kind of choice. Um, and, you know, to sort through all the different options, everyone's health situation is different and what people want from their coverage is always going to be different. So it's useful to go through and explore all the different options of what you may want or what might be right for you. Uh, Again, the the resources that I named, uh, health insurance provider or medicare.gov can help you start to sort through some of that. There are also brokers in a lot of geographies that can sit down with you one-on-one and talk with you about your health situation, what you want from your coverage and what's best for you. Now, when, when someone turns 65, is, is 65 still the age where Medicare kicks in? That's correct. And when you turn 65, uh, I'm, when do you start first getting notices from uh, Medicare or the Social Security Administration or whoever uh, that before you're 65 you have to do something? When, when does that begin and from who? You know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the age is, but it's, it's well in advance. Uh, in fact, I know that a lot of my friends who have just turned 55 will start getting notices from AARP that, uh, that they're starting to get to the age of uh, being an AARP and inviting them to become an AARP member. Well, that's always AARP, exciting. <laughs> it, 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 sort of a reality check. I'm sorry. Um, and AARP also does communicate a lot about different kinds of coverage options, so that's one way that you will know. But the federal government does a lot of outreach uh, very early, um, so you'll have lots of time and lots of communications from the government when you start to get to uh, Medicare-eligible age. Now, as you're getting older, a lot of people, I think, uh, think that Medicare is free. Is there a monthly premium you have to pay for Medicare, or how is that done? So there usually is uh, some some charge that you would have to pay for Medicare Part A and B. When you start to purchase Medicare Advantage plans, there are a lot of plans that are available for zero premium in addition to that. So, um, you know, there, there can be very affordable or $0 premium plans that, that can wrap around Part A and B and making it certainly a, a very reasonable and, and cost-effective choice for a lot of seniors. Well, yeah, that's what I, I want to figure out is if you don't choose Part C and you're going with A and B, uh, are there a lot of hidden costs? We know there's going to be a monthly cost. They deduct that from your Social Security, or where does that come from? Well, if you choose Medicare Part A and B and don't choose C, um, certainly there can be things that may not be covered or, or what we might call a gap. Um, and for those, people would be responsible for paying those those uh, costs for care on their own. Um, that's why I think we, we do encourage people to consider things like a Medicare supplement p- uh, plan or certainly a Medicare Advantage plan, which can help fill in a lot of those gaps. Well, I know in the, uh, a little later on I want to talk more about uh, Medicare Part C to uh, explore that to find out you know, what, what's the ease and the cost in that compared to the A and B. But, uh, yeah, tell us now for a little bit, what is the the cost with Medicare Part C generally? 
you know, there, the, so the costs and the plans will vary, and it depends on geography. <laughs> and when you go into a, a tool like Medicare Plan Finder, which is on that Medicare.gov site, or if you go to talk to a broker, um, you'll be shown different options that are available to you in your zip code, and they will show you things like if there are, uh, what the premium cost would be, if there's not a $0 premium, it'll show you what any kinds of uh, co-pays or out-of-pocket costs might be so that you can compare those. It'll show you what prescription drug coverage uh, looks like on that plan. Um, you can search to make sure that the prescription drugs that you take are available on the plan formulary. So there's a lot of uh, different tools and research that you can do to make sure that throughout the course of the year that you would have the plan that it makes financial sense for you. Well, we're talking to Christine Grove, and she's with uh, Medicare Advantage Plans, the uh, coalition Medicare Choice. And we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back after these words. You're listening to Nick Lopes here on WHK. The advocate. Welcome back, Lebo Nick Phillips, with you with our final segment of the Advocate for tonight, and uh, we're uh, wrapping up our show tonight talking about Medicare Part A, B, and C. And uh, with us, talking to us from Washington D.C. is Christine Grow from the. Coalition for Medicare Choice. Christine, again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you for explaining all of this, uh, by the way. I think uh, many of us who are not involved in it, uh, other than seeing the Medicare bills come in, uh, you know, don't really know much about it. But if uh, we're talking during the last segment about Medicare Part C, that's the Advantage Plans, and you explain that Advantage Plans, that um, really takes the place of Medicare A and B, is that right? It wraps around parts A and B, so it will cover a lot of things that traditional Medicare does not cover, and that could include things like dental care or hearing aids um, or things like foot care or, as I mentioned, prescription drug coverage. It can also offer access to fitness uh, services and even gym memberships to help people stay healthier longer. So there are a lot of different kinds of benefits that Medicare Advantage offers that traditional Medicare does not. Well, like uh, silver sneakers is part of that. We, we've heard of that. That's correct. Silver sneakers is an option that's available with a lot of different Medicare Advantage plans. There are a lot of other fitness uh, plans that may be available on a Medicare Advantage plan. So um, a lot of different options to explore for people. From a paperwork standpoint, uh, is it uh, more focused where you're just dealing with one provider rather than having Medicare and supplements and, and that kind of thing, or how does that work? The benefit of having a Medicare Advantage plan is you have a health insurance provider that you know and are familiar with in your area. For example, a lot of the health insurance providers that offer coverage through an employer or in the individual market will also offer a Medicare Advantage plan. Um, you think of big names that, that you have some comfort with, like Aetna, for example, or Humana, or a lot of other big-name Medicare Advantage plans um, that give you comfort that you have someone who's walking the journey with you, and if you have questions about your coverage or where to go for certain kinds of care, you can call them or you can go onto their website, and they're always there to help you every step of the way. Now, when we talk about these different plans, uh, Medicare Part A and B, 
you uh, are paying for that, and Advantage plans you're paying for that too. How do the prices compare? Well, what happens a lot of times with the Medicare Advantage plans is you can get that for a very low cost or even no cost premium. So for in terms of premium, it could be free for you. Um, and because it covers so many additional services, it can be very well worth the value. As I mentioned, a lot of Medicare Advantage plans include prescription drug coverage where traditional Medicare does not. So that's a very important consideration. <clears throat> well, when you mentioned it could be zero premium, how does That's that, right. How does that even happen? Because uh, if you have to get Medi- if you have Medicare A and B and you get a supplement, you're paying for the supplement typically. I would assume, unless there are free supplements, which I don't know about. No, you're absolutely correct. Medicare Advantage is a uh, available through a partnership through the private sector and the and the public sector. So we've worked very closely with the federal government, and this is something I don't think a lot of people understand: is the federal government has a very close oversight of Medicare Advantage plans. They review them to ensure that they have strong networks, good benefits, good quality controls, and that they're offering very valuable benefits at a valuable price point. The federal government also pays a certain uh, amount to Medicare Advantage plans so that they can offer the robust benefits that uh, people are looking for. That's one of the things that is causing us to be very active here in Washington right now, because as we're looking at the rates that the federal government is proposing to pay to Medicare Advantage plans for next year, we're seeing that those rates are not keeping up with the underlying, uh, the additional rates are not keeping up with the underlying costs of health care, which means uh, that people could see uh, fewer benefits in their Medicare Advantage plan. And we think that that's a concern because those benefits are very important to seniors. You know, if we follow a charge that a a Medicare-eligible person makes. They go to a hospital. They go to an emergency room because they have the flu. And uh, 30 days later, they start. there's bills being generated by the hospital. In a Medicare Advantage plan, where does that bill go for payment? Does the insurance company uh, with the Advantage plan, do they pay it? Or does Medicare well, pay it? And is reimbursements going on behind the scenes? Or what, what's happening? Yes, yeah, so- so it'll work a lot more like a, a traditional commercial plan. So if you have coverage through your job right now, it'll work a lot more like that. You may have some form of a co-pay or co-insurance that you might need to pay, but you know it, it's going to vary depending on the on the, the kind of plan that you get. Yeah, and and I think what people can do when they have questions is when you start to look at you know a couple of plans that you think make sense for you is to call the health insurance provider and talk with them about your situation and walk through scenarios just like that. What happens when I go to a hospital? How will I be billed for that? The good news is that the health insurance provider is always available there for you to call and ask questions. Um, they are they see themselves as the advocate for the patient. So they'll answer your questions. They'll make sure that the billing charges are right. If you have a question about something that you've been billed by a doctor or a hospital, they'll often advocate for you if they think that you have been billed for something that the charge isn't right or maybe even for a service that perhaps you didn't receive. Um, so again, they're with you every step of the way on that journey. Well, looking at the business model, I'm curious, how can they afford not to charge any premium? And they're getting, I suppose, they're getting their reimbursements from Medicare rather than coming to the patient goes to the insurance company? 
That's right. They will rely on the investments and the dollars that they get from the federal government, and they are very good at innovating. So they, because there are so many choices available to seniors, this is a very competitive market. And the health insurance providers work to uh, negotiate lower costs with the doctors and hospitals, to negotiate lower costs with the drug makers for the drugs that they have on their formularies and to offer things like care coordination to improve the overall health of the member, um, care managers and, and uh, social workers who often work with people if they're having a problem getting to care or staying compliant with their medication because they are fully driven to keep you as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And all of that innovation and, and that drive to keep people healthy uh, results in longer-term savings down the road um, because you, you won't be hospitalized as much. Now, we're thrilled that you're not hospitalized as much, right? We, we want to keep we you in the hospital. You want to stay out of the hospital. No offense, um, but yes. <laughs> Uh, right. Um, but that, that results in savings. So by helping you get to your pharmacist, for example, or making sure that you know when and how to take your medications in the right way so that it's safe for you, um, we can lower the cost. Now, so then with lowering the cost, uh, let's just take, for example, is Aetna one of the companies that offers uh, the Advantage plan? Yes, that's a go for Medicare Advantage plans. That's one. Okay, so just use that as an example. Uh, so we understand the business model a little bit. I'm sure everybody's interested in the business model of health insurance. But uh, <laughs> does it mean that um, you have Medicare sets what the reimbursement rates are? Would someone like Aetna negotiate their own reimbursement rates that might be different than Medicare's? No, they do not negotiate reimbursement rates with the federal government. What they do is they will then create networks of doctors and hospitals and create formularies of drugs that are covered on their formularies at different tiers. So they'll negotiate with the doctors and the hospitals and the drug makers for fair rates that they should be reimbursed. We all know that health care costs are very, very high for medical care and for drugs. What we want to do is negotiate better rates so that our patients are not being billed for those very, very high charges. We're very good at that. We're very good at negotiating. So by bringing those costs down, we can realize savings, both for the seniors as well as for the taxpayers. Well, well very good. Well, it certainly sounds, if you don't know anything about Medicare Part C, there's certainly some advantage for the Advantage program. Uh, Christine, do you have a website real quick someone can go to to get some answers? Absolutely. The, the web address for the Coalition for Medicare Choices is medicarechoices.org. Oh, wonderful. Well, uh, Christine Groh, thank you so much for sharing with us tonight. And now we're so understanding of what's going on out there with Medicare. We're all going to go out and age gracefully now and get Medicare when we need it. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's been a great time for me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for listening to us tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to do until morning